0: G.K. Chesterton is a man that preachers love to quote. Uh, Chesterton was someone who lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He was this uh, apologist and Christian writer. And preachers love to quote him because he always has these uh, very pithy and interesting uh, sayings, somewhat humorous sayings. Uh, For instance, one time uh, Chesterton said, The point of an open mind, like having an open mouth, is to close it on something solid. And that's just classic Chesterton. Uh, Chesterton was this large man. He was six feet, four inches tall, uh, weighed around 300 pounds. He had this large uh, girth. And at one point he said to his friend, George Bernard Shaw, who evidently was quite thin, to look at you, anyone would think famine had struck England. And Shaw quickly responded, and to look at you, anyone would think you have caused it. Well, at one, at one time in, uh, in London, uh, some famous London newspaper, they, they ran this question, what's wrong with our world? And the essays and the notes poured in from all over the place, everybody trying to answer that question, what's wrong with the world? And so Chesterton decided to try his hand at it, And so he responded this way, Dear Sirs, I am, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. I think we would all admit that there's a lot of things wrong in our world today. And probably we all have our own opinions as to what the problem exactly is. But maybe before we start pointing fingers out, it might be good for us to take a little look inside and to see what's going on inside our own hearts. Because probably the problem starts with ourselves. You may, like me, have had one of those moments in your life when you realized, well, things aren't quite right. Uh, You might have had this moment where you feel like something's not right on the inside. Reminds me of a story one time that Jesus told this this man came to Jesus and, and this person was someone who on the outside looked like he had it all. He was someone who was uh, wealthy, he was someone who was in power, he was a ruler, he was someone who was young. And yet, down deep in his heart, it seemed like things weren't quite right. He'd achieved all of this in a relatively short period of time, yet it just felt to him like he needed something else, something more. And so he comes to Jesus with a question and it's, it's a question that probably all of us in this room have asked at one time or another. And the question was, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, we all want eternal life, don't we? We all want to believe that this life is not all that there is, that that when we die, uh, we'll move into another realm that we'll live even on from there. And if we believe that, that there is such a thing as eternal life, the question becomes, well, how how do we receive it? How do we inherit it? What do we need to do? Now, I've I've titled this message, A Life and Death Question. And I've titled it that for a couple of reasons, because a lot of times when we think of an issue as life and death, it's something that's important. It's something that's very significant. And I think the question we're thinking about today is very important. But the other reason I've titled this message a life and death question is because, I don't know if you noticed a moment ago, but in the scripture reading, Paul uses those two images, life and death. Those are the two dominant images in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So as we think about salvation today, as we think about what we must do as a This uh, person who came to Jesus asked to inherit eternal life. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 2. And Paul writes to these ancient Ephesians, he begins by describing a life apart from Christ. And the word he used to describe that reality is a hard word. It's a cold word. It's the word death. And so Paul begins in verse 1 by saying, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Paul doesn't soft sell or he doesn't minimize our condition apart from Christ we might choose other words we might, we might say in describing our, our, uh, this distance we have from God we might say well we're just, we feel misguided or, or we're out of step or we might look at our world today as confused as it seems people are and we might say well we're part of a, a sick society maybe we'd, we would use that word and those are okay words, but they really don't do, do, just, do it justice. They really don't go far enough in describing our condition apart from Christ. Paul says we are dead. We are the walking dead. Now that's a pretty graphic image when you think about the television program that some of you in this room know about, the walking dead. It's a powerful image. We're dead in our transgressions and sins. Now death and sin are often linked together in Scripture. Paul tells us in Romans 6 and verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. Sin is death because it's separation from God. Where God is, there's life. But sin always leads away from God and away from life, away from a life that is rich and abundant and eternal and meaningful. And then in one of the most descriptive passages you'll find in your Bible that that describes these forces that are at work in our world, these forces that lead us away from God, Paul begins by saying that a spiritually dead person, notice, follows the ways of this world. You see, we don't live in a, in a neutral environment. No, there's a current that's pulling us in a certain direction. This current pulls us away from God. This current is known as the ways of the world. Now, I have, um, if you put that on the screen, if you would like, James, go ahead and put that up on the screen, the ways of this world. Uh, Now, I've described it this way before. You've heard me talk about the ways of this world, what exactly this is, how that we're not a part of a world that's neutral. Some might want to think of it like that, that we're just a part of a neutral world, you know, no, no, we're a part of a world that has a certain pull, that has a certain tug. Here's how I like to describe it. A number of years ago, my family and I went on vacation down to Panama City, Florida, and we had a condo right on the beach. And I remember early one morning, my family didn't like to get up early, but I did, so I got up early, and I like to walk out on the beach. I opened my door, and I just walked straight out that door and it wasn't very far until I was out on the beach, and I walked straight out into the, to the ocean. And you know how it is on the ocean. You can walk a little ways, and the water is up to your knees. And then you walk a little further, and the water is up your waist. And you walk a little further, and the water is up to your chest. I walked straight out toward the horizon. And I got out there a while, and I was in the water early in the morning. I turned around to look at my condo. Would you believe somebody had moved that condo? The condo was not right behind me. Why is that? Well, the condo hadn't moved. I had moved. I thought I was walking straight. I thought I was walking straight out toward the horizon, but there's a, a, it was a powerful but subtle pull, and it was moving me to the side. I thought I was walking straight, but it was moving me to the side. And I thought that's a pretty good description of the ways of this world. This world is not a neutral place. There's a power that is at work, and it's moving us. And if we don't have our eyes on Jesus and our mind in the word of God, we'll let this world push us in a certain direction. And so that power, Paul wants to say, is at work in this world. But Paul also mentions another influence, and this influence is known as the ruler of the kingdom of the air. You see a spiritually dead person follows this ruler. If you take this book seriously, you'll take the idea of a real and literal Satan seriously. Satan is more than an evil influence, he is a personal power. Jesus took Satan seriously when he walked this earth. John tells us in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8 that that the reason the son of god appeared was to destroy the devil's work and although the ruler of this air has been has been of this world has been defeated by jesus on the cross he will not surrender without struggle he continues to make his powerful influence known the work of the devil is simply to lead us away from life to death and we look at some things going on in our world we look at some people who've been in, involved in our in our world in world history and there's no other way to describe their influence than to believe that there is a literal and real Satan. And if all this isn't enough, there is one other force at work, and Paul calls this the cravings of our flesh. You see, humankind is spinning out of control because of this inner compulsion we have toward evil. This enemy is called the flesh. This is the enemy within. This is our fallen, self-centered nature that is spiritually dead person gives into. This, this is the death principle at work. This is giving over to things that feels right or seems right without understanding what the Word of God says about a particular thing. And again, Paul says this, this leads to death, the cravings of our flesh. This is the person who's unredeemed. This is the person who's just living life, Doing what comes natural. This is a person who's doing what seems natural and normal to this person without understanding the will of God. Paul tells us that outside of Christ, we're not merely misguided. We're not merely sick. No, in fact, he says outside of Christ, the image that Paul uses is we are dead. And the truth of the matter is until we smell the stench of our own death, we'll have little motivation to seek the one who truly offers life. Now, all this talk about death, I've got to be honest with you, it's, it's quite depressing. And yet, although we deserve the wrath of God because of the sin that we have committed, understand there's another possibility. You see, God's desire for us is, is that He would have a relationship with us, that that relationship would one day would be restored, would be made right. He wants to save us. And so Paul tells us in verse 4, and this is a beautiful passage of Scripture. And let's go ahead and put it up on the screen, James. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in transgressions and sins. That little word, but, is so important because the word but suggests there's another possibility but because of his great love for us. Do you realize how deeply God loves us? We talked about that last week. We saw how that God takes a personal interest in every one of us. When God thinks about me and when God thinks about you, when God thinks of all of us, his heart beats fast because God wants more than anything else to have a relationship with us. But because of his great love, notice how that love is described, God's great love. God has great love for us, but also God's mercy is rich. In the Old Testament, God is described as one who abounds in mercy. God holds back some things. God lavishes us with blessing. God loves us. God is a God of grace, but God is also a God of mercy. God holds back from giving us what we deserve at times because he loves us so deeply. Because God's love is great and his mercy is rich. What has he done? Well, notice what Paul says in that verse that's on the screen. Paul's reminding these Ephesian Christians of his past action. What has he done? He has made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in transgressions and sins. Here's how the noted theologian R.C. Sproul describes it. I I love how he puts this into proper perspective and gives us a better picture of this. Sproul says, God doesn't just throw a life preserver to a drowning person. No, God goes to the bottom of the sea, pulls a corpse up from the bottom of the sea, takes that corpse and, and puts the corpse on the bank and breathes the breath of life into that corpse and makes him alive. That's what God does. For us. And so that begs the question well, how do we go from death to life? Or to put it another way, how do we experience salvation? And so Paul hints at it in verse 5 when he says, It is by grace you have been saved. How are we saved? By grace. But then he gets even more explicit in verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2. Now you're familiar with this verse. If you're if you've been at, around church at all, you, you've heard Ephesians 2 8 and 9. Arguably, these two verses are, are maybe uh, two or three most familiar verses in your Bible. May, maybe. John 3.16, we could say that's probably the most familiar verse. Everybody knows John 3.16. If you hang out in churches of Christ, you know Acts 2.38. That's a very familiar verse to you. Ephesians 2.8 and 9 is very familiar. And it goes like this. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And as you read those two verses, there are two key ideas that emerge that are really, really important as we think about this gift of salvation. And the first word is grace. It is by grace. Salvation is this marvelous gift. When you think of the word grace, just think of gift. Think of this gift that you can't earn and you do not deserve. Now, I used to have a certain view of grace. I used to imagine it like this. Um, if, if perfection is, is 10 on a scale of 1 to 10, then I imagined that if, that if I went to church and I gave a little money and I tried my best to live a moral life and I listened very carefully to the sermon and I even encouraged the preacher and, and I did good things and you know I had all this list of stuff. If I did all of that, then, then maybe I would get to a 7 or 8 and that God's grace comes in He just sort of takes up the slack, that he lavishes a little grace on us, and if we're at seven, then he lavishes three more points on us, and we get to the perfect model, we get to ten, and that's grace. Now, there's a technical Greek word for that understanding of grace, and it's the word baloney. That couldn't be further from the truth. Grace is not just a little something God adds on top of all of our good works. Grace is this incredible gift. God gives it all. He blesses us with this wonderful gift we we can't earn and we do not deserve. It's all from Him. The Old Testament prophets would talk about our works and our righteousness as, as filthy rags. And when I have this view of God's grace, that it's all God's grace, when I realize that, it wells up within me, this this wonderful spirit of thankfulness, and it makes me want to live for Him. It makes me want to be a better man than I am because of God's incredible grace. Salvation is by grace. But notice he says it is through faith. Faith is the conduit. Faith is the channel, the pathway for grace. Faith is the way that I receive this wonderful gift. Faith is the human response to the divine initiative of salvation. I like how one writer put it. It is the answer of a walking corpse to the Son of God's come forth. What does faith look like? You see, there are some people in our world who, who think, and a lot of religious people, who think that faith is like, it's like mental ascent. It's like thinking something in your brain. That's what faith is. But friends, I want you to know a faith that saves is a faith that obeys. What does biblical faith look like? It's trust. So we have this beautiful picture of this in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas, they've been preaching the gospel, and as a result, the city is stirred up, and so Paul and Silas are put in jail. And Paul and Silas don't react like a lot of people react when they're put in jail. A lot of people, they're put in jail. They start complaining, and they start talking about how that they're innocent, and I can't believe God allowed this. That's not Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas, it's midnight now. and What are they doing? They're praying and singing praises to God. And then suddenly, this incredible thing happens. God acts, and the, there's this miraculous earthquake, and the, the doors fly open, and the foundations of the prison shake, and the prison guard, he's, he thinks, uh-oh, all the prisoners have gone. He's about ready to take his life. But Paul and Silas says, don't, don't harm yourself. We're all here. And so when he finds out that everyone was still there, this jailer comes to Paul and Silas. And this jailer asks a very significant question. Maybe it's a question that some of you have this morning. He puts it like this in Acts 16, 29. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? How can I experience? That's what we're talking about today, salvation. How can I experience salvation? And notice what Paul and Silas said to him in verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. That's what faith is. Faith, notice It's not to believe something about, but it's to believe on the Lord. I love what happens next. Paul and Silas, it says they preached the word. They spoke the the word of the Lord to him and to the others in the jail. And the jailer was just so thankful for all that he's learning, for all that's happened. He he washes their wounds. Remember Paul and Silas, that they'd been beaten within an inch of their death. Now this jailer, he washes their wounds. He's so grateful for what's happened. And then it says, and then immediately, immediately, he and all his household were baptized. That's Acts 16, 33. The jailer brought them into the house and set a meal before him, before them. And it says this next, and finally, he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He'd come to believe in God in God what does faith look like what does it mean when you say I believe in God it's active trust it's trusting Christ enough to confess him it's trusting Christ enough to say I was once going in that direction I'm going to go that direction that's called repentance it's trusting Christ enough to go down in water and be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of your sins Paul says in Ephesians 2 8 and 9 by grace it's a wonderful gift By grace, through faith, we're saved. I remember it so well. I'd been to Bible camp. I lost my Bible, but I found a girlfriend, so it wasn't a bad, bad week. And really, that week of Bible camp um, was really, really important to me in a lot of ways. I heard the Bible that week came alive for me. I was 13 years old. The Bible came alive to me. And, and I walked away from that experience having good Bible teachers and having a lot of fun, more, more fun than, than I can ever imagine have, having. And I came back with this sense that, that I wanted to be close to God, that something wasn't quite right in my heart. Suddenly, something wasn't quite right in my life. And so that Sunday night I went to church. The preacher was a man by the name of Noel Roberts. He wasn't especially eloquent or powerful, and it wasn't like we had this especially moving worship service. I mean, there was about, you know, maybe 15 or 20 of us that gathered in this little tiny church. But I, after he preached, as was his custom, he always said, now, you know, if anyone needs to be baptized, won't you come? Well, together we stand and while we sing. I was sitting about three rows back, right about where Joe is. We started singing that song, Oh, Why Not Tonight?, and I wondered down in my heart, why not? Why not now? Why not me? Why not tonight? And I stepped out on that aisle, and I walked down to the front. My mother starts getting emotional. I'll never forget it. And I took the hand of the preacher, and I turned to that church, and I said, I believe that Jesus Christ, I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then Noel and I, we went into the back, and I... I put on a white outfit and Noel put on the waders and we waded into the water and he said Kevin upon your confession of faith I now baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and he lowered my body under the water and, and pulled my body out of that water and I accepted the greatest gift in that moment that I could ever receive in that moment I placed my trust not in that I placed my trust in Jesus I'd asked the greatest question I could ask and I found my answer and in that moment I went from death to life I'm wondering is there someone in this room is there someone right now who needs to do that. I wonder, is there someone in this room that you feel down deep in your heart that's, maybe you got a good life, but you know you're still far from God. God offers all of us this wonderful gift. And how do we receive this gift, this gift gift we receive it by faith what does that faith look like it looks like someone willing to repent of their sins and be baptized in Jesus name so that every sin is washed away and now what are you waiting for Paul will say in another place arise and be baptized washing away your sins when you come up out of that water you're not a start to say not a perfect person actually you are every sin is washed away God's Holy Spirit comes to live in you, and God's Spirit will help you be the kind of person that He wants you to be. What an incredible gift. If you've not received that gift, we'd like to help you with that decision as we stand and sing. Come down front. People need the Lord. People need